I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hey, Mark, great to see you. Great to see you, Miriam. I'm really excited for today's episode with Kat Zoe. I am too. She will bring a global perspective. She will bring a deep dive, uh, given her proximity to tech as it's being designed and created. Uh, and she's also worked for government. So I think she'll have a lot to add to our perspective and for our listeners. Absolutely. I think she will also bring a uh, designer perspective, a product designer perspective, which I think is something that uh, we haven't heard a lot about in our previous conversations. So some new ground to explore today. I'm particularly excited to hear her thoughts because she is such a, a strong advocate of ethical AI. I've seen her articles, her speeches, and reports of her comments. Uh, so I think we're in for a treat today hearing her very thoughtful and very open perspectives on what she expects out of the tech industry. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's dive right in and, and, and hear from Kat. Today, we are so pleased to have our guest, Kat Zoe, who is a product designer at Spotify based in Stockholm, but that hardly begins to explain her and her contributions to inclusivity in AI and otherwise. Case in point, her design ethically toolkit and framework, which is publicly available on a website. She models for Fury, advises on decolonizing AI for the YX Foundation. She makes cover art for podcasts that she deems rad, so we will have to see if we can one day qualify for such a lofty uh, uh, label. She was an extra on the House of Cards. She has done so many things, and in her spare times, she enjoys tweeting and organizing around her leftist views. Kat, we have so much to discuss with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. I'm so excited to chat with you and Mark. Well, let's start with some of the really thoughtful statements you've been putting out in the world. Uh, you've said companies can no longer can afford to ignore the ethical ramifications of their products. The days of reckless tech need to come to an end. So what are these consequences you're alluding to and what would you like us to do about it? Yeah, sure. So I think any kind of technology that plays into uh, dividing the power that we see in our communities, um, whereas, you know, giving one group more power and taking power away from another group, that's, that is reckless tech and that is dangerous tech. Um, any technology that plays into these existing systemic inequalities that we have is, is dangerous. And we see that through technology that plays into uh, the needs of law enforcement or technology that enhances um, misinformation and it spreads misinformation. So I think those aspects of technology need to be regulated, need to be uh, looked at more closely, um, and we need to enable folks within the industry um, and outside of the industry to hold tech companies accountable. Great, great way to kick off the conversation. And, um, and, and before we dive into some of those pieces, which we, we are going to do, the regulation, the self-regulation, the role of employees, all of that is, is, is on the table for today. Maybe we could just hear a little bit about your journey uh, yourself and how you, how you came to this, um, this, this industry and, and this particular position within it as someone who wants it to succeed, uh, but you know, wants it to, 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 to do so by, by, by doing well and um, doing so ethically. Yeah, sure. 
So uh, funnily enough, I kind of stumbled into tech by accident. Um, in university, I started out studying uh, public policy and ethics with the intention of going to law school, um, and that didn't happen. I quickly switched to design halfway through, um, and afterwards, my first job out of college was designing at IBM in their public service division. And I was living in DC, and my first client was the Air Force. Um, and I realized um, how incredibly frustrating it could be to design in that space. I think there's a lot of merits to designing within, you know, civic tech. Um, but for me, I just found that designing in the Air Force uh, that didn't necessarily align with my own views. Um, and I also realized that in Capitol Hill, there was a lot of progress that needed to be made in order for folks to really understand. And when I say folks, I mean policymakers to really understand what was going on with tech to begin with. Um, and so these were some of the observations that I had over there. Um, and I think I also, at the time, was just hearing uh, from, from news and from media time and time again about how tech companies um, were creating problematic products. And for me, it was very frustrating because I had kind of come into the tech scene with this rose-tinted view, uh, really excited about what we can do. I kind of subscribed to that whole um, Silicon Valley episode where everyone was like, yeah, we're going to use tech to save the world and revolutionize everything and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and as you can imagine, I was quite disappointed when that obviously wasn't the case. Um, and I think that for me was kind of the launching point to realizing that we need to change a lot of things, not only within our industry, but also beyond. Um, and we need to take it really seriously. It's not all just fun and games because there's a lot of real world implications at hand. And so I assume that was part of your motivation for creating design ethically, but would love to not assume and ask you directly, what was your motivation? Who's your intended audience? And, and what do you hope will come of this creation you've put into the world? Yeah, and you're exactly right. That was my motivation to create design ethically. And my intended audience at first was myself uh, because I had so many questions. And I honestly do have to credit my mentor at the time, Nathaniel Axios, who had infinite patience with me uh, as I would rant about the tech industry and the role that designers played in it um, at every one of our sessions. And he just listened and listened and listened. Um, and then he was actually the one who eventually pushed me to do something about it. And that's how Design Ethically was born. And so for me, it was really just a way to answer the questions that I had about you know, what can designers do? What can product teams do? Um, and product teams encompassing designers, engineers, product managers, researchers, et cetera. Um, because, you know, at the time we had heard a lot about why we needed ethics in tech, but no one was really talking about what that meant or what that looked like. What does it mean to, to be ethical in tech? Um, and at the time it seemed like it was just a statement that companies would throw out. Um, rather than an actual meaningful change in what they were doing. It's interesting you say that because uh, I think a lot of the work that I do and that Miriam does is very much focused on um, on the how questions uh, with you know the, the the kind of 
um, uh, assumption baked in there, uh, which is you know probably not fully correct, but but to some degree, as I think that you know the why questions have been pretty well um, fleshed out. Uh, but that does not necessarily mean that we have any idea how to actually operationalize our commitments to particular values or ethics. Uh, and so, on that vein, I, I'm wondering if you could just you know walk us through an example or two of your work um, in, in, in any of these these professional contexts that you've been in or, or, or good work that you've seen um, from others of, of how someone has actually applied ethics as a designer specifically um, and kind of what the what the outcome of that was and, and how that changed um, what would have been the kind of status quo approach um, had someone not come in and proactively thought, we're going to do this in a, in a, in a more ethical way. Mm. I think a lot of the, the big examples that I've seen, not just from designers, but anyone in the tech scene have been the ones that you've heard about, you know, people speaking up within their companies. Um, and this isn't necessarily like a, a process change or anything, but it's just a matter of organizing within these companies. Um, people, speaking up at town halls, people questioning leadership, people um, signing petitions with their fellow employees and finding that solidarity. I think those are the most noticeable and impressive examples that I've noted of myself, just observing the industry. And in the past few years, we've seen a growth of organizing efforts, of unionization efforts in companies um, in Silicon Valley and beyond. And I think that trend needs to continue um, because that is, that's where the power is, to strength the numbers. And I'm excited to see more of that happening. Is it safe to say then that um, you have views on the, on the recent um, uh, kind of discussions that have been happening in some companies, I think Basecamp, um, Coinbase being the, the biggest example uh, on this question of, you know, do politics belong in the tech workplace. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that um, to share. Yeah. And my my stance is unequivocally, yes, politics do matter. Um, companies, tech companies, whether they like it or not, are inherently political. Um, any kind of product that you put out there will impact people uh, in a political way, whether you like it or not. Um, it will impact people from a perspective of power. And so, it, I think to say, oh, no politics in our company is a very silly thing to do. Um, I don't think it's possible. I think by saying that, that is a political statement. Um, and it's a statement that upholds the status quo, that you know completely stifles oftentimes marginalized voices within the companies. So I think for, for companies to say that is really reckless, reckless in one way. Um, and disregards the well-being uh, of of their employees. So for me, I think that I believe that all co- I, I believe that all employees should have that ability to speak up um, and to do so is a very brave thing, I think. So I, I think uh, it's clear that you're doing so much to motivate employees. You're giving them tools, you're giving them platforms to uh, 
try and answer these eternally pressing questions of what is ethical uh, and then how do we apply it to these new technologies. Um, but obviously these questions are so big and the consequences are so complex and potentially dangerous. Um, there are many other players that need to be uh, involved and you've also talked about the role that government needs to play. I'm particularly interested in your vantage point now that you've been across the globe and seen how different governments are, are operating in this space. But I, I was um, reading in protocol recently uh, your participation at an FTC event, uh, which according to the article said you gave a scathing rebuke of the tech sector explaining how companies motivate their employees to build deceptive products in the name of growth. So uh, really interesting thoughts. The conclusion it sounded like was that there needs to be regulation. And I would love your thoughts on what should that regulation look like? Can it be national? Does it need to be global given how AI works and operates across boundaries? Uh, Where should we start? Yeah, and regulation is a huge part of it. Uh, but before that regulation can even happen, I think we need to actively work on fixing our current governing systems, not only locally, also federally, but also internationally as well. Um, after all, a lot of the problematic uses of AI and of technology in general have been built specifically for violent institutions like militaries or ICE or law enforcement or whatnot. Um, and these institutions have often had these kind of kinds of racist and imperialistic um, bents to them. And so I think that we need to not only fix our systems as they are, um, and also encourage regulation, um, holistic regulation of the tech industry um, and of the, the, gr- the drivers behind it, um, but we also have to hold ourselves accountable um, by listening to organizers, both within and especially outside of the tech industry. Um, community organizers are so critical. And in every city that I've lived in, um, I've just seen the wonders that they can do um, and the hard work that they are doing on the ground uh, because they are the first ones that are able to pinpoint the problems and dangers that are happening. Um, so I think that's so important. And when it comes to, to regulation in general, um, I think that we need to approach it from all angles. Um, as you said, AI is everywhere. And, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to regulate it in one place if, it, you know, these technologies are also happening on other sides of the world, uh, which is why I think uh, internationally there has to be more joint efforts um, at finding... The, the right way to rein in uh, problematic uses of AI. And that's a lot easier said than done. It's, it's really, really hard to do that, especially when you have certain governments um, that might care about privacy more than others and certain governments that um, are more invasive than others. And so it's definitely, it starts from the ground up, but I, I think that it's very much necessary. One of the things that we see with governments is that they they feel that they're walking a fine line between, on the one hand, managing the risks and mitigating harms around AI, including some of the ones that you've mentioned, while on the other hand, making sure that they are supportive of a AI industry in their country to create jobs, economic opportunity and growth, etc. 
Um, we ask most of our guests to give us their thoughts on recommendations for the Biden administration uh, in that regard. Uh, but since you're in Europe and we've just had the publication of the European Commission's new draft regulations on AI, I wanted to see if you have any thoughts on how well they've they've walked that line and, and kind of how um, how much confidence you have that, that that draft is at least starting to go in the right direction. Yeah, so... I, I think there's a couple key um, differences that I've seen. And the biggest one between Europe, Europe's approach to tech and towards AI in general and the US's is that I think over here it's a bit slower and they, they work a little bit slower in terms of approving things and, and allowing technologies to kind of unfold, um, which you know we've, we've seen things like GDPR over here as well, being a bit more conscientious about how they're tackling um, certain areas within tech. Um, and so I think that's something that I appreciate over here. And one of the first things that I noticed when I uh, moved over here to Stockholm was that if I was using my phone, um, and especially like Safari or Google Chrome on my phone, um, everything, every website that I opened um, had to offer up this like consent box of, are you okay with us using your data and whatnot? Um, and it's, it's just a, a pretty distinct, like in your face difference. Um, and so when it comes to like Biden's administration, I, I think that we need to continue uh, cracking down on invasive surveillance capitalist tech. Um, you know, in 2019, San Francisco banned the usage of facial recognition technology by the police and by other city agencies. And I would love to see more of that in other parts of the US and beyond. Um, I think we can also uh, start by regulating private facial recognition and surveillance technology. And I'm talking about technologies like the Amazon Ring doorbell or Google Nest Hello. Um, these are new industries that are starting to crop up and, and grow. Um, and I think that the tools that they're creating um, enable technological vigilantism and they kind of inherently sow into distrust amongst communities. Um, and it really makes you ask, you know, who gets the power of owning this kind of surveillance technology? Um, not just law enforcement, but folks that are your neighbors, right? Who gets to act as the neighborhood watch um, and who gets watched? So I, I think that moving along those lines um, in the U.S., is really, really critical. And as a student of ethical design, um, how would these products work differently at the end and or, and or what would be the steps that you would ask that the either government insist upon or that a good uh, ethical practice would mandate um, along the way so that even in these, I mean, it, so I guess my first question is, so would these surveillance technologies not exist or would they be designed differently? And if so, what that would look like? Personally, I don't think they should exist. I, I think they're incredibly dangerous. Um, and I think just inherently in communities, we always have an imbalance of power. And when you have surveillance technology, it's always going to be used against those who don't have power. Um, and I, even speaking from personal experience, my first time uh, experience surveillance um, predatory tech in person was actually when I was visiting my extended family in China. 
And, you know, I was in the car with my uncle and he's driving us from the airport back to his home. And um, at the, you know, corner above us, in front of us, uh, there was an intersection where a bunch of police were just sitting there um, and they pulled us over. They like waved us over and um, apparently they had been able to figure out that my uncle had some kind of bill payment issue he had to sort out. And uh, while I was in this car, completely jet lagged, I'm just wondering, how did they know? Like, were they waiting for him? Um, turns out they simply had this automatic license plate recognition technology. Um, and they were just scanning people as they drove by. And if you were in the database, they could pull you over. Um, and this was just a, a regular reality for my uncle and for the folks in his city. Um, and this was 2018. And so that was incredibly eye-opening for me. Um, and, you know, that kind of technology is really, really prevalent over there right now. Um, and we had the privilege of being, you know, Han Chinese. We're from the, the majority group, ethnic group there. Um, imagine if we weren't. Imagine if we we were not from a position of relative privilege in that, in that area. Um, so for me, I... I I'm very wary of surveillance technology in general. Wow. Yeah. One thing that I think is so cool about your background and your work is that you, you straddled the two worlds of, of, of technology and of activism. And, um, you know, you're, you're, you're very um, open about your, your, your views and, and, and what you care about. And I think that, that that's not necessarily common in the tech industry um, at least in a public way. And I wanted to just, you know, while we have you, see if you have any thoughts or suggestions for our guests about uh, resources to, to read, to watch, to listen to, um, to get more educated on um, some of these more critical perspectives uh, that you are uh, part of and engaged with and, and thinking about. Yeah, there are so many, so many resources. Um, in terms of books, I highly recommend reading Algorithms of Oppression by Dr. Sophia Noble. Um, there's also Race After Technology by Professor Ruha Benjamin. Um, I actually had the privilege of listening to her lecture in person, and she's just incredible. The work that she's doing is so fascinating. Um, and then there are uh, is a, a good book called um, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Professor Shoshana Zuboff. Also, really, really a good read on just how prevalent this technology is and kind of the systems that prop it up. Um, in terms of other books that are not necessarily tech-related, but also very, very, I think, key to kind of read to gain better understanding um, of our system, of our entire society. Uh, Carceral, Carceral Capitalism by Jackie Wang. Um, really fascinating look at how our, our you know, prison industrial complex system um, has kind of proliferated in the U.S. and what ramifications that has. Uh, also, I'm just like, thinking off the top of my head. Um, in Design Ethically, the website over there, uh, designethically.com, there's um, actually a, a page of book recommendations that I have. Um, and so, yeah, you can check that out as well. So just to um, 
try and tie together, which is a subject that really can't be because it is too complex and, and uh, constantly iterating. But if you wanted uh, someone listening today to change their process to make sure that um, there were more ethical inputs, to make sure that it was safer and more inclusive on the other end, are there two or three key elements that you think we should really be focusing on when we are either testing or designing our AI products? Yeah, yeah. So I think that uh, for designing AI, ethical AI products, um, you know, it's no longer just enough to, to have explainable and transparent AI products that can be easily replicated. That's just the bare minimum. I think that in order to truly move towards ethical AI design, we have to design with power in mind and actively do so. Uh, we have to think about who our products are affecting, who they're not affecting, and whether or not we're furthering power differences. Uh, we also have to proactively design to be anti-racist and abolitionist. I think that is 100% the case um, moving forward, and especially looking at what's been going on um, in the past year or so uh, and, be, and prior to that. You know, we see so many use cases of AI being used to further segregate or to please or to punish. Um, and I think that needs to be something that we think about as we're building these products. And, you know, working in a tech company, it can be so easy sometimes to get hyped up, you know, when you're thinking and brainstorming about your product or your feature or whatnot. Um, and oftentimes you're, you're in these meetings with your teammates. And of course, everyone's like, yeah, this is such a great idea. We're solving this problem. And they get really excited about it. And it can be really easy to, to kind of neglect to think about the flip side of things. Um, and I've even noticed this in my workshops with Design Ethically. Uh, unless you prime someone to think actively about what could be the consequences, um, oftentimes you forget. And that's just human nature. And so I think we have to try to prime ourselves continually to be in that headspace, to think about um, what impacts our products will have. And we have to recognize that until we have a, a tech industry that is inclusive um, of all folks from all demographics, um, it's going to be very hard to, to bring in those perspectives. Absolutely. It sounds like uh, one thing we need to do is send everybody a sign to put above their computer for their Zoom calls. For whom could this fail? Yeah, <laughs> the Kathy exactly. O'Neill, uh, just put, putting the punch and the, and the emphasis on, uh, on that point that you're making. For whom could this fail? I love that. Kat, we, 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 um, we, we'd like to end our podcast with uh, a question that we ask all of our guests, um, which is just zooming out a little bit and taking... Um, the kind of 30,000 foot view of AI and its role and its development within our society. And we, we like to ask for um, the rose, the thorn and the bud of AI for you. And the rose is something that you're, you're happy about or excited about that, that is good with respect to AI that, that, that you've seen recently. Uh, the thorn is, is, is the opposite, something that, um, you know, you're seeing is a, a real negative um, uh, development or, 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 or issue right now. Uh, and the bud is something on the horizon that, you know, maybe, um, you know, bringing something positive and beneficial in the future, uh, but is in the early stages now. So, um, 
yeah, rose, thorn, and bud of, of artificial intelligence. Yeah, so I think the rose of what I'm excited about right now, uh, or what's good right now, is that we're seeing more and more inclusive and multidisciplinary efforts in AI design and in the AI field in general. Um, you know, I had the luck of attending the Please Do Not Include Us workshop on AI ethics that was hosted at the Harvard Kennedy School by uh, Dr. Joan Donovan, Donovan's um, Technology and Social Change Research Project Group um, and the Digital Justice Lab. And that was such a cool cohort of folks from academia, from industry, from uh, community organization efforts. And I think we want to see more of that because um, those perspectives, that interdisciplinary perspective is so important when it comes to figuring out how to best regulate AI. Um, the, the thorn that I'm worried about is that if we don't reign in the industry ahead of time, you know, it's really hard to, to regulate tech um, preemptively, as we've seen, just because of the kind of disconnect between policymakers and emerging technologies. Um, and I, I'm worried that if we're always stuck in this kind of retroactive regulation, uh, then we could see a lot of potential um, harms come to people. Uh, with the bud that I'm excited for in the horizon is community-driven AI design rather than capitalist-driven AI design. Um, and I think that for me is, you know, it's not here yet, but I want to see more of it. I want to see that be the future. Um, one of my favorite quotes of all time is by Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, and she says, those closest to the pain should be closest to the power. Um, and I, I want to see more of that ethos in AI design um, overall. And so for me, I think that AI, like any kind of technology, is not the end, rather it's a means to the end. And so, for example, homelessness is not going to be fixed by an app and the COVID pandemic won't be fixed by AI. So these issues are only fixed by societal and regula regulatory changes, um, especially changes that uplift and empower vulnerable communities. And so I think that if we have that kind of mindset and if we steer AI design and AI products from the community and from the you know communities that have been most marginalized, that is what I'm hopeful for. Thank you, Kat. You've given us so much to digest and think about and to leave us on a hopeful note uh, is a real gift considering all you've seen and done. So thank you for uplifting us and, and sharing your insights with us today. Thank you for having me here. It's so good to talk with you all. Well, that was uh, quite the conversation, Miriam. We, we really covered a lot of ground today. We did. And Kat Zoe is obviously such a, a thoughtful, uh, deep thinker who has put so much uh, time and effort into uh, understanding what the problems are and taking the time to add tools to correct some of these problems. Yeah, 100%. I think there were a few things that, that, that struck me about her, her, her comments. One is that I, I found it refreshing how uh, straightforward and, and clear she is in her analysis of of, of power in, in in the in in the AI conversation. I think we tend to have a lot of conversations about ethics and about responsibility and about choices. And um, she's just very uh, you know uh, clear about her views that you know there's a real question of power here. Who gets to wield it? How is it exercised? 
How are vulnerable and marginalized people protected uh, from the power wielded by others? And I just thought that was a really um, a refreshing kind of candor uh, in what can sometimes be a bit of a fuzzy conversation about ethics. I agree. And I think it was also very instructive that somebody who is so deep in tech did not intend to start there. So I think for anyone out there who was a history major, studies English, uh, poli sci, that was her orientation. She studied public policy. That was what she planned to go into. Obviously, she still has a deep interest and now she applies that in the AI space. So I think it's it's interesting to see uh, the real benefit to having a broader perspective from having studied other uh, fields before jumping into design and AI. Um, I also think it's it's so helpful to see um, how she has used her power and and her thoughts in different ways. she was upset about ethical design, and so she created a website for people to use about it, uh, to use to correct these these issues. And so I think uh, she also makes us think outside the box and not just expect others to correct these problems, but she goes a step further thinking about how she can participate in the solutions. Absolutely. I thought that that was um, a real highlight, and, and I think that she's an example for, for anyone, really, about how you can make your voice heard and try to improve the, the, the future of, 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 of artificial intelligence and technology in general. And so, yeah, I thought it was a, a terrific conversation and I'm excited to keep up with Kat as she no doubt continues to do amazing work. My only hope uh, at the end of the conversation is that we can somehow convince her to do some amazing cover art for our podcast. (laughs) We'll have to work on that. Well, another great episode, and I can't wait for our next one. Yeah, see you soon, ma'am. Bye, Mark. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 